If you have a Bible, please open with me to 1 Samuel chapter 21. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 9. Uh, we'll, we'll be doing this, and then we'll be doing one more Samuel sermon next week, and then we're going to take a break over the summer from Samuel. And I'm going to do some family and marriage sermons, and then a, a series on what it is to be a good, faithful church member. Uh, we'll do a whole series on that. So look forward to that, prepping for that. Before we, we begin, though, this morning, let us pray together. Let's, let's cry out to the Lord to, to give us understanding and insight into his word. Lord, we thank you so much for the ministry of Samuel, Lord, um, for David, for the priests, Lord, for the holy bread, the bread of your presence. We know that you are here, uh, here with us now. We know, Lord, that you are, in fact, uh, a feast, a feast of goodness and joy and comfort and strength. And we pray, Lord God, that we would open your word now and that we would, who have already tasted and seen that the Lord is good, that we would hunger for the satisfaction that you alone can and will provide here this morning. We thank you and we praise you in the name of your Son, and amen. Now these uh, two chapters, chapter 20 and chapter 21, um, there's no break in them in the story. 1 Samuel 20, verse 42, said, it ends with, and Jonathan went into the city. Chapter 21 begins with, then David came to Nob, the, to Ahimelech the priest. So what we have immediately a parting. And at that parting is the parting of two chapters. Jonathan goes back to his doomed household. J David turns from the departure of his friend directly to the tabernacle, the portable throne of Yahweh. He needs to be outfitted. He is without food. He is without sword. He needs supplies. So he turns to his king. He turns to the house of the Lord from which God has always equipped not only David, but all of his people. David flees to the city of the priests. The Lord's ministers are his first allies in exile. Are they yours? Are your primary allies the ministers of God's word? Right? If you're a soldier and you're in the field, where would you go immediately? <laughs> Typically, you would go and get yourself a sword. You go and see the armor. You would go and see the smith. But that's not what David does. David goes to the house of the Lord. In John 21, 17, Jesus tells Peter, feed my sheep. Peter was a faithful minister. He understood this. It says in 1 Peter 2, 2-3, like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. When people taste and know the Lord is good, they go to the Lord's ministers to be fed. And if they're good ministers, they feed them. They know where the true nourishment comes. And it is found in God's house. It is provided from heaven. But what kind of minister is Ahimelech? We know that his brother is an advisor to Saul in 1 Samuel 13. We know that he descends from Eli, and Eli was not exactly what I would call a faithful minister. So here's David in distress, turning to the house of the Lord, and what is he going to find? Faithful ministers or unfaithful ministers? Will David find sustenance in his desert wandering? Are the priests as faithful as the prophets? Remember, in chapter 19, he hid amongst the prophets, and the prophets, surrounded by the Holy Spirit, protected him. Can we say the same of the priests? Well, let's find out. In 1 Samuel 21, verse 1 through 2, we read, Then David came to Nob, to Ahimelech the priest, and Ahimelech came to meet David, trembling, and said to him, Why are you alone and no one with you? 
And David said to him, like the priest, the king has charged me with the matter and said to me, let no one know anything of the matter about which I send you and which I have charged you. I have made an appointment with the young men for such and such a place. <laughs> I find that answer vague and unconvincing. Such and such a place. After fleeing from Saul's house, David came to Nob where the priests were living. These are, in fact, the descendants of Eli. Some of them have survived. They've taken the tabernacle to Nob following the destruction of the Shiloh sanctuary back in chapter 4. It wasn't, uh, the tabernacle wasn't completely destroyed. Some of it was salvaged and some of it's taken to Nob and they, and they build, they put it there because the tabernacle was always the Lord's throne, the Lord's house. Ahimelech knew that Saul was pursuing David. He feared association with him. This is why he comes out and he's trembling. He knows who David is. He knows what's going on in the, thro- in, in the palace. He knows the intrigues and he is terrified that he is there and he's terrified that he's alone. Earlier, the elders of Bethlehem had come out trembling when Samuel came to anoint David in chapter 16. And so we see a connection here. (laughs) Those who possess God's favor cause people to tremble. I remember uh, Napoleon said that he would rather meet all the armies of Prussia than one Calvinist that knew his Bible. (laughs) May it always be so. There is something ferocious. I've been quoted for years. I stole this from Doug Wilson. But I don't just teach you know, Calvinism. I teach what I call weapons-grade Calvinism. When the people of God show up and, and when they are getting ready to go to war, when they see us, they, people ought to tremble. They ought to tremble. Because the Lord, um, our Lord, though he is good, is not safe. And likewise, we ought to be good, but not safe. Not safe for people's comfort, not safe for people's, uh, for their, themselves, for their own kingdoms, for their idols. We should be an unsafe people. David then uses deceit to avoid direct conflict with Saul. Now, some people will call this lying, but I think it's very important in the Bible to make a distinction between lying and deceit. They're not actually the same thing. David accomplishes two things by this deception. First, it gave Ahimelech the impression that David was still doing the king's business and thus relieved Ahimelech's fears. Okay, I'm here on the king's business. I'm not here as a rebel. I'm not here to overthrow you. I'm not here to kill you and take everything out of the tabernacle. I am here on the king's business. Secondly, what he does is he, he protects Ahimelech by providing him with what they call plausible deniability. <laughs> right? Well, I don't know. Saul, I don't know what he was doing. He said he was here for you. And if, and if right, Saul can't charge him with anything if he doesn't know anything. Now, I want everyone to remember that. Plausible deniability is going to be a weapon we're going to need a great deal in the coming years, I believe. And plausible deniability is if people don't know something, they're not in danger. If Saul showed up and demanded to know why Ahimelech had helped David, he, Ahimelech would be able to plead ignorance. Now, what's interesting here, and this is how deception works, David does not lie. He says, I am here on an errand for the king. My first question would be, well, which king? Yahweh is king, and Saul is king. So he doesn't say which king. So he's withholding information. He is not lying. And there is a huge difference between the two. And what I find with modern evangelicalism, the modern church, is we think all all things like this, these kinds of stories, is always these patriarchs and, and our leaders in the Old Testament going astray. Well, you know, he's not Jesus. He's lying to this person. It's wicked and evil. He shouldn't do it. And that is not true. He should deceive. The Lord loves deception. He loves it. He's all about conspiracy. 
David notes that the king has sent him on an errand, and, we, and he does not specify Yahweh or Saul. Yahweh is the true king of Israel. It has been stated throughout Samuel in uh, chapter 8, verse 7, chapter 12, verse 12. And later, uh, David, throughout his whole life, refers to Yahweh as his king. Psalm 5.2, give attention to the sound of my cry, my king and my God, for to you do I pray. David is not lying. He's on an errand for Israel's true king, but his ambiguous, his ambiguous answer protects Ahimelech. The problem is he does not understand how degenerate Saul has gotten. We're going to find out later on, not to ruin the story, but that this, this lie does not protect Ahimelech. Ahimelech gets into a great deal of trouble. And, and what David underestimates at this point, which sometimes happens, is the depth of the depravity of his enemy. Now, David's first need is his bread. He's come to Ahimelech. He has given him a um, somewhat plausible story. And now he gets to his list of needs. 1 Samuel 21, verse 3 through 6. Now, then, what do you have on hand? Give me five loaves of bread, or whatever is here. And the priest answered David, I have no common bread on hand, but there is holy bread. If the young men have kept themselves from women, and David answered the priest, truly, women have been kept from us, as always, when I go on an expedition. The vessels of the young men are holy, even when it is an ordinary journey. How much more today will their vessels be holy? So the priest gave him the holy bread, for there was no bread there but the bread of the presence, which is removed from before the Lord to be replaced by hot bread on the day that it is taken away. Now, five is a Hebraic idiom, meaning a few. When, you know, when we say, oh, give me a few, we generally mean two, but it's not very specific. In Hebrew, when you say, give me five, it's saying the same thing. It says, give me a few loaves of bread. Ahimelech's action illustrates the principle that one can, in fact, violate the law of God if charity is at stake. This was Jesus' interpretation of what's happening here. He ought not to give anyone but holy, consecrated priests this bread. And he does it, and he does it out of charity's sake. This is what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 12, verse 3 through 8. Jesus said to them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry, and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests. I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. For the Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. Now this certainly, this man giving away the bread of the presence, for charity's sake, that Jesus later commends, doesn't seem like a son of Eli. He knows his responsibility, it seems. He, the Lord said, feed my sheep. And here is a sheep of God, clearly a sheep of God, and Ahimelech gives him the bread of the presence. So this is very commendable. Now, if the priest had bent the law for humanitarian reason, why does David mention that his men are holy, though? He doesn't just say they're clean. He says they're holy, and there is a huge difference. David insisted that his men had been kept from women, a reference to Leviticus 15.18, which informs us that sexual intercourse causes uncleanness. So they would avoid sexual uncleanness before going to battle because they wanted to keep themselves clean. They wanted to be able to go before the Lord, to be consecrated, in a sense, to the Lord. David did not, however, merely say that the men were clean. He says holy. He says consecrated. He says set apart. David did not... I'm sorry, the two terms are not identical in the Bible. An Israelite avoided uncleanness by washing himself if he became unclean. David considers God's warfare a holy endeavor. He's a completely different kind of warrior, a completely different kind of king. He considers the fighting that he is doing consecrated and holy work. 
In his battle with Goliath, we saw that David framed his fight in theological terms. This is how he thought about it. He thought everything in the framework of what, am, what I'm doing is not for my kingdom. What I'm doing is not even necessarily for the kingdom of Israel. What I am doing is for the kingdom of, G, of God, of Yahweh, of the Lord. He says in 1 Samuel 17, 36, Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them. For he has defied the armies of the living God. 1 Samuel 17, 45, Then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. He's not just fighting in a war. He is fighting holy war. Holy war is David's mission. And so therefore, he has to be holy in order to enter into it. David's statement suggests that his men had been consecrated. This is a tradition in Israel. Some of the greatest warriors in their history were not just men who were going out and fighting. They were men who had set themselves apart to fight God's holy war against the infidel. Joshua 3.5, then Joshua said to the people, consecrate yourselves for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. He doesn't just say go and get clean. He says consecrate yourselves. Set yourselves apart. When you do killing tomorrow, it's not just normal killing, it's holy killing. And this is how David understands himself. He considers himself a priest king. Now, this is what I love. When Jader, later, when Jesus is mentioning this, that there's all of this subtext going on. What does it, right? If, if Jesus is comparing him and his people eating um, grain on the Sabbath, which was the, the, what they were doing at the time that he mentioned this, he's comparing him and his men to David and his men. Jesus and his, his followers were not just warriors. They were holy warriors. They were not just in, at warfare. They were committing holy war. David's men put themselves under something like a Nazarite vow until their holy war was concluded. To become holy, a man had to undergo a consecration rite. Samuel had had the same thing happen to him. 1 Samuel 1.11 And Hannah vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give to the Lord all the days of his life I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor shall touch his head. Now, this is a vow from the Old Testament that some people would enter into for special work. They wouldn't cut their hair like Samson was this way. They wouldn't consume grapes in any fashion, and they devoted themselves entirely to the Lord. And this isn't just now a special one-time case. David is doing it, and his men are doing it. it. He is creating not just a nation of believers, but a nation of Holy warriors. David required his soldiers to, to, to take on his, his pregame. His pregame is getting himself consecrated. If you're going to follow David, you too will be consecrated. And, and this is what the Lord wants from leaders. 1 Timothy 4.12, it says, Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. He doesn't just want followers. He wants people who are going to imitate him. And this is one of hundreds, hundreds of examples where David is like Jesus. He's setting them an example. This is how you fight the, God, the, the wars of the Lord. This is how you fight for him. This is how you set yourself apart because the work that we're doing is set apart. It's not normal. Now, the bread that David received was nothing less than the bread of the presence, which ordinarily only priests were allowed to eat. It says in Leviticus 24, 5 through 9, very clearly, in black and white, you shall take fine flour and bake 12 loaves from it. Two-tenths of an ephah shall be in each loaf, and you shall set them in two piles, six in a pile, on the table of pure gold before the Lord. Every Sabbath day, Aaron shall arrange it before the Lord regularly. 
It is from the people of Israel as a covenant forever. And it shall be for Aaron and his sons, and they shall eat it in a holy place, since it is for him a most holy portion out of the Lord's food, offerings a portion or a perpetual due. A perpetual due. Something that they are going to go on doing forever. Every Sabbath, 12 loaves were piled on the table on the north side of the holy place in the tabernacle. These loaves were part of Israel's provision for the Levites, who had no inheritance in the land. This is something that they always had to do. They always had to provide for the Levites because the Levites had no inheritance in the land. So the people made this bread and put it in the house of the Lord. It's the bread of the presence. The the priests are doing special work, set apart work, and they get to eat it. Now, I believe that the priest is being generous. I think he's showing mercy. But I think there is more going on to this than that. It's not less than that. It's more than that. He recognizes that David is not a normal king. David is not a normal warrior, right? This man deserves, he is consecrated, he is a priest like myself, even though he carries a sword. And he invites him to the table of the Lord, a a special table, a set-apart table. It was a quiet witness, these loaves, that Yahweh had sustained his people and continued down to the present to supply their need, as he had done in Exodus 16 when he had manna fall out of the sky. He wanted to remind them that he had fed them in the desert. And so they also, not just to provide for the priests, they piled this bread there so that they could see it. In the God's house is bread, perpetually, always, 12 loaves, enough for every tribe. There is always enough food for the people of God in God's house. Now, not everyone can eat it. And now suddenly, David, who's not just a warrior, he is a priest king now. They're adding layer upon layer to this whole story because they're continually increasing our expectation of what the Messiah would be. That's what's going on suddenly here. When Israel escaped from Pharaoh in the wilderness, the Lord provided miraculous bread from heaven. It's mentioned in Deuteronomy 8.3. And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone. But man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Man doesn't live on mere bread. He lives on the word of God. And so when he's giving him this bread, he's giving him more than just bread. He's giving him the bread of the presence. He's giving him the word of the Lord. He's saying, David, go into the wilderness and fight the Lord's fight, but don't go with just merely bread. Go with the word of the Lord in your hands. David was a new Israel, a new type and shadow of the one who was to come, his greater descendant, a man who lives not on mere bread, but whose true food descends from heaven. This is why he turned to the the tabernacle. The very word of God is his food. John 6.31, Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness as it is written, He gave them bread from heaven to eat. That was what Jesus said. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10.3, And all ate the same spiritual food, and it was Christ. The bread of the presence is Christ. It has always been Christ. When Jesus came, he didn't come to make things new. He came to reveal how things had always been. There had always been bread in their presence. There had always been sufficient food. There, has, there had always been more for the people of God than mere crumbs. The true church of God has always looked to the heavens for the provision of true food and true bread. Jesus said in John 6:51, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. The word of God, the bread of God's presence is our daily bread. 
isn't it? Do you need more than that? Every morning when you go up, when you get up to go into the wilderness, do you need more than that? I confess I do, oftentimes, need more than that. And that is why we have this story. David is taking on all of Israel. And in order to do that, he needs more than just bread. He is going out and fighting a war in which the odds are stacked against him in instrument. Like, I can't even describe to you. I couldn't do the math to get you to understand how the odds are not in his favor if you look with your normal eyes. And he says, the first thing I need to do this is bread of the presence of the Lord. I need the living God. David's daily bread is the bread of the presence of Yahweh. Is it ours? But as David says in Psalm 23, 5, this table is set amidst enemies because David's shepherd is the Lord. (laughs) Because he is our Lord, we shall not want. But because he is our Lord, our table, this feast that he provides for us, is set amidst enemies. 1 Samuel 21, 7. Now a certain man of the servants of Saul was there that day detained before the Lord. His name was Dog the Edomite. I'm just going to call him Dog because it's funnier. Dog the Edomite, the chief of Saul's herdsmen. He's the sheep dog. It is unclear who this person is. It is unclear as to why he's here. He, he may have been a slave from Saul's victory over the Edomites in 1 Samuel 14. He may just be a hired sword. It's, it's really unclear. And what does it mean that he's, he's an unbeliever? He can't go to the presence of the Lord. But what does it mean that he's detained in the presence of the Lord? I can honestly tell you that I do not know. It's, it is not clear. He's, he's, he's being punished, perhaps. He's being kept outside of the presence of the Lord. From, and he's just there perpetually by the tabernacle doing some service of the king. It is very unclear. The purpose of dog, however, his presence at Nob, is not, though it is not clearly understood, it, it unsettles David. He's going to say later in 22.22, 1 Samuel 22.22, I was, con- <laughs> was very uneasy that he was there. And it's going to prove later, it's going to come back next week, that he is in fact a dog. We're going to come back to that though. But here is David, focused on the Lord, feasting on the Lord, and who is there? An enemy of the Lord. Now, this also is written for our sake. There are always enemies about when you're feasting on the Lord. That's why the feast is there. That's why the feast is there. He is our shepherd. And because he is our shepherd, not only does he provide, but he does not provide for us in in easy, safe selfishness. He provides for you in, in, in a situation always in which that food is going to make or break it. His strength is going to be your strength or not. His provision is going to be your provision or not. His courage, his presence is going to be the thing that buoys you, that you stand on or not. You will always have a test that comes with the provision, always. But at this point, it's sufficient to see that David is being provided for from heaven amidst his enemies. 1 Samuel 21, 8 through 9, And David said to Ahimelech, Then have you not here a spear or a sword at hand? For I have brought neither my sword nor my weapons with me, because the king's business required haste. And the priest said, The sword of Goliath, the Philistine, whom you struck down in the valley of Elah, behold, it is here, wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. If you will take that, take it, for there is none but that here. And David said, There is none like it. Give it to me. Besides food, David needed a weapon. Thus he inquired about obtaining a spear or a sword. It is not an accident, I don't think. It's reasonable to assume that David asked about these items because he is the one who brought it there. 
Because you could, t- according to Leviticus 27.14, you could dedicate things to the tabernacle. You could give your house to the tabernacle. You could give your wealth to the tabernacle. You could give your sword to the tabernacle to honor God as a gift. If you paid a price, you could get it back. So David knows. You know what's in the house of the Lord? That sword that I earned by a well-aimed faith. You know what else is in the, <laughs> the house of the Lord? Is an abundance of food. Is the living word. Everything I need is in the house of the Lord. The Lord had sent his spirit to thwart Saul under the protection of Samuel. Now the Lord equips David with a sword, a sword attained by a well-aimed faith. David has turned to the Lord's house to be armed for war, and this is an example to us. Ephesians 6.17, And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. The word of God, when wielded by those who are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, is a sword. It's not just a word. It is a sword. Hebrews 4.12, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Isaiah 49.2, He made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me a polished arrow. In his quiver, he hid me away. God's warfare in Hosea 6.5, Therefore I have hewn them by the prophets. I have slain them by the words of my mouth, and my judgment goes forth as the light. That is the weapon of Paul. 2 Corinthians 6, 7, by truthful speech, and by the power of God, with the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left. See, because we're not carrying real swords anymore. What are we carrying? As consecrated warriors for God, doing the Lord's business, fighting his war, our weapon is what? What's your weapon? What's your daily bread? That's what this story is about. David needs only one thing, and it keeps coming back to the same thing. The word of the Lord, the word of the Lord, the word of the Lord, the word of the Lord. Are you fighting with something else? Are you fighting with pills? Are you fighting with drink? Are you fighting with music? Are you fighting with what? Money? What's saving you every day? What's protecting you every day? When you have problems in your life, your first reaction is to throw what at it? The Lord God says, I hewn them with the prophets. Peter stands up on Pentecost and he preaches a sermon and what happens? They're cut to the heart. Is that the way that we are fighting? Right? What are we looking to? The Republican platform? Judges? Presidents? Congress? Can we all just laugh at that for a moment? We want more than the word of God for our daily bread. We are fighting with far more than the the word of God, a whole bunch of weapons that do nothing for us. If you don't have this part centered, if you don't have this part at the heart of what you're doing, you've gone astray. You've gone astray. uh, 2 Timothy 3, 16-17, All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Are you equipped for every good work? If you're not, what's the thing you need? Reproof? How about correction? Anybody here need some correction? Anyone want to volunteer that information? How about training? How's your sword arm? <laughs> but most of us don't think we need to be reproved. Any, any kind of reproof. We don't, we don't need to be corrected. 
David is ready, equipped with the word of God, both his daily bread and his sword. But just because he leaves God's house, he hasn't left God's household for which the Lord always provides. He always provides for his household, whether you're in the house of God or not. 1 Samuel 21, 10 through 15. And David rose and fled that day from Saul and went to Achish, the king of Gath. And the servants of Achish said to him, Is not this David the king of the land? Did they not sing to one another of him in dances? Saul has struck down his thousands, and David his ten thousands. And David took these words to heart and was much afraid of Kish, the king of Gath. So he changed his behavior before them and pretended to be insane in their hands and made marks on the doors of the gates and let the spittle run down his beard. Then Akish said to his servants, Behold, you see the man is mad. Why have you brought him to me? Do I lack madmen that you have brought this fellow to behave as a madman in my presence? Shall this fellow come into my house? Now, he has, there's no reason to protect David here. Let's think about this for a moment. Where is he gone? Gath. Who's from Gath? Well, the Philistines. You know who else is there from there? Goliath. So he rolls into Goliath's hometown carrying Goliath's sword that he used to chop Goliath's head off. Into the town where there's a bunch of widows and a bunch of <laughs> mothers who have lost their sons to this man. He's either really dumb or really brave. And I honestly can't tell. I don't really, I mean, this is, people think I like to get into trouble from time to time. But this is on another level. I'm going to come into your hometown with the sword I used to kill your people. Does anyone have a job? You guys need a, a shepherd? Well, I got this sword. How about a warrior? Anybody need a warrior? Why does everyone look so angry? What is David doing here? Now, now, this is where we see some, faulting, uh, some faltering in his plan because he is afraid now, and he should be, because what he's done was stupid. I, I think we can collect from the works here that he has made a misstep. Now, at this point, does the Lord let the Philistines have at him? No, he goes back to his, his tried-and-true method of deceiving people. He acts like he's mad, which is, uh, I mean, that is a really funny thing to do. He's like letting the spit draw down on his face. He's like making weird marks on the door, and he's acting like he's just crazy. And it works. Now, it works why? Because he's so clever or because God is with him? So even after he leaves the house of the Lord, he gets himself into this situation where he shouldn't have, and the Lord continues to protect him, continues to go before him, continues to preserve him, continues to supply him with what he needs. Now, if he hadn't already been practicing all this other deception leading up to this, would he have been able to pull this off? All along, people, right? You, you read the commentaries, you're like, well, he's lying, well, he's lying, well, he's lying. He's practicing biblical deception in practice for a moment like this where he is saved by the skin of his teeth. The day is coming where we're going to be in a similar situation. Are you practicing biblical deception? Let the hearer understand. There is a way to fight like the world, and there is a way where the Lord provides for us to deceive. Are you using the law to your advantage? Remember Paul? Paul was about to be whipped. He's like, uh, wait a minute, I just had a, I just want to, I, I was reading the RCW the other day, Roman soldier, and I just want to ask a question. Are you allowed to handcuff a Roman citizen? You're a what now? A Roman citizen. Now, why hadn't Paul said anything up to that point? Why other times did he not use that? Right? You, we have got to be as innocent as doves, but as shrewd as serpents. And, and I find that most of us are ill-equipped. We get ourselves into situations like this, 
and we don't know what to do because we're out of practice. And all of us need to go from here and consider the ethics of deception a great deal more than we do. And if you want to know how, read, read Genesis and the patriarchs. Their deception was excellent always, and almost always worked. Now, what's really fascinating here is that according to the headings of Psalm 34 and 56, both Psalms arose in the wake of the fiasco in Gath. You may look at 1 Samuel 21, 10 through 15 and wonder, can anything good come out of Gath? We've got David acting like a nut. We've got the king wanting to put him to death. He's all alone. Can anything good come out of this? Here is David, foolish, desperate, confused, but it's the stuff that psalms are made of. This is what is behind these psalms, these prayers that we use. Stories like this. He acted foolishly, and God spared him, and he sat down, and, and the thing that he decided to do was to write a song about it. Now, about how wise and smart he is, or about how good the Lord is, how great the Lord is. David's deliverance from all of his fears and all of his troubles in Psalm 34, 4 and verse 6 is the pledge that Yahweh will do the same for all believers. We sing this song now. It's a fantastic song. We know this song. We've heard it in here time and time again. And what it's about is the foolishness of David and the greatness of God. There are real stories behind these psalms. They're not just poems, right? I, I, in my misspent youth, I spent a lot of time with poets. I run this poetry theater. The poetry was terrible. Ask my wife. It was awful. The poor woman courting me had to go to this awful place and from this awful poetry. And what I love about this is the word of God, the poetry of God, there is deep meaning to it. And the deep meaning to it is the foolishness of man and the goodness of God. And if we understand what the stories are about in the Psalms, it brings them to life. Have you ever done something foolish and the Lord spared you anyway? Have you ever looked around and thought, you know, we need a high tower. We need safety. We need to remember that we've tasted of the Lord and it's good. We need to remember that even though I have to act like a madman and deceive people to get out of this stupid situation I'm in, the Lord has not abandoned me. If you ever need a song just like that, the Lord has provided one. From desperation arises praise. So even out of heaven, he's not only giving him the loaves, he's not only giving him the sword, he's not only protecting him against his enemies, he's giving him reasons to praise the Lord. Everything that David has comes from heaven. Because providentially, here's David doing all of these things, and what comes out of it is scripture. Think about that for a moment. Psalm 34 is an expression of thanksgiving for God's protection and care for those who trust in him. And here David is again a type of Christ who sings Yahweh's praises amid the congregation. It says in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 11 and 12, For he sanctifies, and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing praise. Now, what is the congregation? David is alone at this point. What's the congregation? Who's with him in this? Well, we find out in 1 Samuel 22. This is what we find out. It says here, David departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. And when his brothers and his father's house heard it, they went down there to him. And everyone who was in distress and everyone who was in debt and everyone who was bitter in soul gathered to him. And he became commander over them. And there were with him about 400 men. Now that's a lot of embittered souls, right? I, I mean, I, I'll be honest. There are times you meet somebody and they are interested in going to your church and they're kind of a train wreck. You can see the bitterness on their face when they're talking to you, and you think, you know, there's another church down the road. 
right? We don't typically are like, yes, bring me all the embittered people who are going to need a lot of my time to minister to them, to calm them down, to listen to their woes. And here is David, when he's got all of these troubles, has no problem carrying around 400 of these guys. Escaping from enemy territory, his family first comes and lives with him in a cave. Caves are associated in the Bible, obviously, with death. Caves were used as tombs. It was much easier to just use a cave opposed to cut one out of, out of the rock. When Lot and his daughters thought that the world had come to an end, they went and lived in a cave in Genesis 19. David had been driven out of Saul's house from his home and safety, utterly rejected. He lived in a tomb, but it's not permanent. He's there for only a time. David would rise from the grave. Under the threat of King Saul, his whole family comes. These are his brothers. While David sojourned as an outlaw, like the judge Japheth in Judges 11, men began to gather to him, forming a core of a new Israel, a new congregation. And are they the learned? Are they the holy? Are they clean? He said his men are holy. So we know what he's going to do with these people. He's going to teach them his practices to consecrate themselves under the Lord. And who does he do it with? A bunch of losers. A bunch of embittered losers. Now, this is not what I would call, right? I would not go down to the bookstore and find a book on church growth based on this plan. Live in a cave like a dead man and get all the bitter, angry people you can find, and then you'll have a new Israel. You'll have a new church. I'd be like, well, putting that book back. Thank you. Now, it's a real, and I have to admit, when you have 400 guys, that's a lot of guys. You could kill a lot of people with 400 guys. You could cause a lot of, a lot of disturbance. Um, the, what's it, the swamp fox, the swamp fox is a great story from South Carolina during the American Revolution. And he was a dude who lived in a swamp like a cave. And all he had was 400 men. And he single-handedly distracted the British long enough for the Americans to, to get help from the French to defeat them. Most people don't know who he is. His name's Francis Marion. I'm a, I'm a big fan. He's a very, very much like a David character. And all he had was 400 men. You can do a lot of damage with 400 men. Throughout military history, you can do a lot of damage. And so what does David do? Does he now go and start attacking the king? See, I'm going to get mine back, Saul. It's very, it, that 400 men is a huge temptation to him. Just like Jesus having the ability as God, right, to not suffer. He had to not use his power and submit to the Lord his father. The God his father. Here is David with the ability to do some real damage, and he doesn't do it. He has power that he doesn't use. These men, it's, it says, the Hebrews, they're in distress, they're in debt, they're discontented, they are embittered. Do you think they want to go take on the king? Right? Let's look at what happened last year. How many people were ready to storm Olympia? Or the Capitol building? I'm going to mention January 6th, do it, right? An angry mob isn't hard to come by. And, and what's Jesus, in the Gospels, it's very interesting. There's always angry mobs. And Jesus never actually leads an angry mob. He creates followers, but he also creates angry mobs where he goes. And he never uses the angry mob. David is not going to use an angry mob. We find out in 2 Samuel 23 that these are, in fact, his mighty men. He makes this a disciplined, a well-disciplined, godly, holy army. And he doesn't just, follow, or doesn't just lead an angry mob, a discontented, motley crew. 
He takes these men and he calls them brothers. He's like the Lord. He has no problem calling these men his brothers, but he doesn't leave them how he found them. He makes them like himself, a consecrated warrior to the Lord. And they are going to go out and build the kingdom of the Lord in a huge way in the coming chapters. But he doesn't just lead an angry mob. He has no problem, however, calling these people his friends, calling these people his brothers. This is what this is what Jesus did. Matthew eleven twenty eight to thirty. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Come out and live with me in this cave. Come out and live with me on the run. Come out and live with me in the wilderness, and we will be true the true Israel. And that is what the Lord Jesus was doing in His day. Like Jesus, his greatest descendant, David calls all the disenfranchised to himself to form a new Israel in the wilderness, one that will not remain in the cave, but will arise from the tomb in power. Because they will be the mighty men of David. Now, there's one little detail that David's got to take care of here before the story concludes. And that is in 1 Samuel 22, 3-4, we read, And David went from there to Mizpah of Moab. And he said to the king of Moab, please let my father and my mother stay with you till I know what God will do for me. And he left them with the king of Moab, and they stayed with him all the time that David was in the stronghold. David's parents needed a safe place to stay. So he takes them to the Moabites because he descends from Moabites because Ruth is Jesse's grandmother. Now, here's my question. If you've read the book of Ruth, do you think angry and bitter Naomi would have considered that her sojourn in this land where she loses her children and her husband would at later on provide an ark for her own family. The family she couldn't possibly have imagined was coming. Right? So in that story, not only is Ruth married to Boaz and they have children and they have this family, generations later, David in his distress turns to this family, this extended family of his, and God has made a, a place for them, an ark for them. Do you think that in her bitterness and in her tears and her suffering that she could possibly have imagined what the Lord was going to do with it? Can you? Have you ever been sitting there full of tears, wetting your pillow, distressed beyond belief? You can't believe God is doing this to you. Why is he making me suffer in this way? Well, how do you know four generations later that it isn't somehow going to be an ark to your own grandchildren? John Piper likes to say it. God is doing 10 million things in our life. We're maybe aware of three of them. I think three is generous. How often has some unlooked-for provision descended, as it were, out of the blue sky? How often has that happened to you? How often have, because the Lord goes before us. He was, through all of that story with Ruth and Naomi, providing a way for his people, just like he did with Moses. Moses is put into a little boat. He floats down the river. He's taken into the, by this evil ruler. He's raised by the evil ruler. He's given the wisdom of the Egyptians. And then what? Then his people reject him, and he goes in the wilderness for a time. And all along, God is preparing him to come back and deliver his people. Think of what the Lord, what the Lord has to control in that story of Moses. And you see that Naomi is the same. Do you think Naomi was happy that her husband was moving her to another land where she had no family? Do you think, how do you, wives, how do you think she felt about that? Have you ever heard your husband like come up with this brilliant plan and you're like, that sounds like a terrible plan, but I'm going to follow you. And then you get there and what happens? He dies. <laughs> you're like, 
at least if you were going to die, couldn't you leave me where my family was? She has no children. She has nothing. And she returns to the land with a Moabite daughter-in-law baggage because they are considered sexually perverse. They are considered non-Israel. She can't go into the temple. She is a foreigner going back to this land. And Naomi's got to drag her along. Did you, right? How angry is she? That's why when she says, I am bitter. And what do you think would have happened if, if David could have come back in time at that moment and been like, listen, this is all going to work out because you're providing a place for my family to live when we're being hunted by the king of Israel. She's like, we have a king in Israel? <laughs> and, and this is what the Lord is doing for us all the time. And we have no idea. We have no idea. It says in Romans 8.28, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. And I, we have no idea, right? We like this verse, but what is it, right? We think, oh, it's going to be good, so I mean, I'm going to get the raise. But what if the good means going to a foreign land and living Naomi's life? He knows what we need. He knows what our grandchildren need. He knows what our cousins need. He knows what the people around us need. He knows what the people on the other side of the world right now need. And he's working in all of our lives to do good for those who love him. And it's hard to believe. But that's what we're called to do is to believe it. And we're given stories like this to see, to get a glimpse behind the curtain that this man, this God-man in heaven, this Lord of ours, is not an idiot. He knows what he's doing. And not only does he know what he's doing, what he's doing is good. What he's doing is gracious. What he's doing is far beyond anything that we can possibly deserve. And so when you're sitting down to the word of God, because you don't live on bread alone, these are the stories that he feeds you so that you would have hope, that you would trust him, that you would have faith in him, that you would be comforted in the midst of your trials and tribulations. And amidst all these blessings, there's one more. He's got bread. He's got a sword. He's got protection. He's got a community. He has a following, a fellowship. He has the providence of God, which has gone before him in ways that nobody could have imagined. And, and, and then there's one last thing. And what do you think it is? It's not an Abram's tank. That's what I would prefer in his situation. It's a prophet. <laughs> oh, thanks. It's a prophet. In, in the midst of all these other gifts, the Lord has one more. 1 Samuel 22.5, Then the prophet Gad said to David, Do not remain in the stronghold. Depart and go into the land of Judah. So David departed and went into the forest of Hereth. Don't stay in the stronghold in Moab. Don't stay there where it's easy and safe and selfish. The prophet of God says, No, go back to Judah. Go back to the land in which you are being hunted. Go back to the land in which all you have are people who are a bunch of misfits. And David says what? Oh, I'm sorry, I'm not going to do that. He goes. Because it's the word has come from the Lord through the prophet, and he obeys it. Among the men that joined David was a seer. And in those days, they called prophets seers. Gath, through whom David consulted with the Lord. He's able to speak directly to the Lord. Now, now not only did Gad provide guidance, but his presence in David's camp indicated that David actually, at this point, is taking on the trappings of a king because prophets are advisors to kings. That's what they do in Israel. What had Samuel been doing all this time? Is he advising farmers? Is he advising shopkeepers? Or was he advising kings? So to have Gad there with him in the midst of this motley crew, 
means that the Lord is fulfilling his promises, saying, you will be king in Israel. Now, it doesn't look like what you normally think as a king, but it is true. Now, the prophet Gad identifies himself with the cause of David, and later he would be one of the, the chroniclers. He's the one that we know what's going on at this time because he's there with him. It says in 1 Chronicles 29, 29, Now, the acts of King David from first to last are written in the chronicles of Samuel the seer and in the chronicles of Nathan the prophet and in the chronicles of Gad the seer. Desperation is no fun. Is it fun? Who here likes to be desperate? Right? Who likes to be without food, without weapons, without people, without a place to go? No safety for your family. No idea what's going on. Now, could you imagine that desperation with no word? No word of comfort. No word of help. No promise. No, no advice. No counsel. Now, we tend to think, right? How often? How often do we think we are a people in desperation without a word? If I polled you, right? How often would you say that you are in utter desperation and you're like, and I, if the Lord would just, if he would just speak to me, if the heavens would just open and everyone around me heard thunder, but I heard the clear voice of God telling me exactly what to do. Now we feel that way, don't we? All the time we feel this way. The wilderness is not quite so bad if one can hear his shepherd's voice and know that he is near. And how often do we think we're in a wilderness with no shepherd? We're just sheep at random, <laughs> being hunted down here, there, and everywhere. David heard the voice directly, right? The voice of God through the prophet Gad. God's troubled people still hear his voice. This is what he wants us to know. You are not without bread. You live on more than bread. Your sword is provided from heaven. The providence of God goes before you. The, the fellowship of God is all around you, and his word has not left you. You, there, you should not feel desperate and wordless. Of the Old Testament, Paul says this in Romans 15.4, For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. Now, is there something wrong with the word of God? In what way is it deficient? So then why are we wandering around in our desperation as if there is no word from the Lord? Now, how does this work? Do we just go home tomorrow in our desperation and just open the Bible at random? Do one of these? <laughs> no, that is not what I am suggesting. The Lord has given a very clear command to the ministers of God, and that is feed them. Are you being fed? Right? It's like, it's like my kids. My, my sweet, dear wife pours over the, the books. What am I going to make? 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 Well, we'll go, to, go to the store. We'll buy all this stuff. Hours cooking. Prepares everything that they need. All four food groups, five food groups, however many there are, whatever. <laughs> And she sets the plate down in front of them, and it's steaming hot. Can she make them eat? Can she make them eat? Now, sometimes that's what I want to do. It's like, well, I will get them to eat this. Watch, right? <laughs> She's like, how about you go in the other room and calm down? Because it's the, right, you see it in, with little kids. They don't, the ingratitude, they have no idea what's gone into this. And, and, and ladies, how, I mean, seriously, how personal does it feel when you've prepared this food and nobody wants to eat it? 
right? I, and I'll do it. Oh, that's what we're having? Honey, you look, you look kind of messy. I'm sorry, were you in the kitchen for hours and hours and hours? Oh, that's what we're having? Mm. You want me to order pizza? And here is the Lord in heaven, going before us for generations, providing more than our daily bread, providing the bread of his presence, providing us with a sword, providing us with counselors, providing us with fellowship, providing us with everything that we need, more than what we need. And still, can he make us eat? Can he make us? I can't make you eat. And how often do the ministers of God lay before you the feast of the Lord that comes down out of heaven, not through schmoes like myself. It comes down out of heaven. And we are you eating it? Are you feasting on it? Is it enough? Hosea 13, 4 through 5. But I am the Lord your God. From the land of Egypt you know no God but me, and besides me there is no Savior. I, it was I who knew you in the wilderness in the land of drought. It's not the wisdom of men. It's not the wisdom of men, right? We, I, we, I hear it all the time. Well, you need to be able to exegete the word of God and exegete people. You're like, okay, cool, I'll try that. And then I say things that I've prepared very, you know, like, oh, let me chop this up and dice this baby up. And then you just say something offhand and somebody's life has changed. And you're like, I don't know where that came from. Right? It's not men. It's the Lord who's walking with you. When you, when you were sitting down, whatever Bible pro- program you're using to read through the scriptures, have you, has it ever happened where that one day you read exactly what you needed? Or, right, you read something and you remembered some story from the past that, that buoyed your faith, that built you up, that gave you hope right in the moment when you needed it. It's because the person who's walking with us, who's providing for us, is not merely a man. He's the all-knowing, all-seeing, all, right? The God who is love. The tokens of his help are not what we want them to be. They're not obvious. They're not obvious, right? <laughs> if you ask a parent, are the tokens of God's love the 13 kids that you have? And there are moments where they would say no. They'd be like, no. Right? Because what we want is easy, safe selfishness. Is that husband who's complaining about the food again? <laughs> is that the look for token that you want? His tokens of help are not obvious. Five loaves of bread, the backside of the gas city limit sign as one leaves town, a gang of malcontents, a Moabite ancestress, a prophet giving orders, not an arsenal of strength according to the world. The ragtag band sitting to your right and left before you and behind you, the crumbs of the Lord's table, the Bible in your hands, are a feast amidst enemies. The Lord's long faithfulness in the same direction. Your good. The Lord is not forgotten. He knows you. He sees you. He hears you. There's nothing that passes his notice. Nothing slips by him. Come to him. Come to him. What do you need? Do you need more than bread? Do you need something to fight with? Do you need a people? Do you need some word of truth, of guidance, of understanding? Do you need to understand his providence? He will provide you food and weapons and company and counsel, an arsenal, a feast in the midst of war. Ephesians 2, 19 through, through 22. Now listen. Right? This story, I'm telling you, is thousands of years old. Thousands. Right? Has anyone been to Moab lately? <laughs> right? How many of you guys own a sword? But what is this whole story about? It's about this. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19 through 22. 
So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles, prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. You are the temple where the abundant food is. You are the temple where his sword is. You are the temple where his ragtag bunch of nobodies is gathering to hear the counsel of a prophet, to know what to do, to have hope, to see the providence of God, to see that there is, in fact, someone who's good and loving guiding the ship. This is the temple of the Lord. This is the tabernacle. This is where the feast of the Lord is. But he can't, we can't make you eat. You've got you've to be hungry. In this temple, let us find not just food, but the bread of the Lord's presence and his fellowship and his counsel and his providence, his long obedience in the same direction, which is your good. Amen. Father, we thank you so much for the prophet Gad, for Samuel, for those who rallied to David, who followed the Lord and were obedient, Lord. No matter what their eyes saw, they knew that you were building the household of God through unlikely means. I pray, Lord, as we have heard this story, that it would strengthen our hearts and give us understanding and insight and that we would go from here, Lord, and see that your work is not finished, that you are still building your kingdom with the same ragtag group, feeding us on more than mere bread, providing for us and going before us. Your work is continuing on to this day and in your house, and that is us. May, may we understand it, may we believe it, Lord God, and may we live according to it. And amen.